Let's turn to God's Word this morning, and if you will, please turn with me to Paul's second epistle to Timothy. The second epistle to Timothy. I'm going to read just from verses 3 through to verse 12. So beginning at verse 3, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers day and night, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in the, that in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher, and an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him." against that day. In this second letter to Timothy, Paul gives helpful advice to Timothy to remain solidly ground in Christian service and to endure suffering during the difficult days to come. It's easy for us to serve Christ for the wrong reasons because it's exciting, it's rewarding, or it's personally enriching. Without a proper foundation, however, we will find it easy to quit during difficult times. All believers need a strong foundation for their service because Christian service does not get easier as we grow older and it will become no easier as the time of Christ's return grows closer. In his notes on verse 12 and Paul's suffering for the gospel, Schofield identifies seven essential resources to help equip us in our service to the Lord. And herein lies the title I've given to my message this morning, that of seven essential resources. And those seven resources are faith, the Spirit, the Word of God, the grace of Christ, the Lord's faithfulness and power, separation from vessels unto dishonour, and the Lord's sure reward. But before we look at those in detail, let's just give this time to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank thee for thy word, for thy word is truth. We thank thee that thy word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And through your word, Lord, we, we thank you that we can indeed draw closer to you, that you reveal yourself to us through your word. And we pray today, Lord, that the words I speak be your words, not my words, that you would touch our hearts, Lord, uplift us, embolden us, encourage us, challenge us and change us, that we be no, 
no longer just hearers of the word, but doers of your word. And we pray this morning that again, Lord, you will bless the public reading of your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 5 of chapter 1 of this letter, Paul recalls the sincere faith that was instilled into Timothy by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And that Greek word for faith is pistis. It's used 244 times in the New Testament. The fact that faith is mentioned so many times suggests that it's something the Lord deems important for us to understand. And so I'd like to begin this morning by taking a closer look at faith. What is faith? In Ephesians 3 verse 17, Paul tells us that it is by faith that Christ dwells in us. And in Ephesians 4 verse 5, that there is one but one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And he goes on to say in Ephesians 4 verse 13 that there is a unity of faith. The shield of faith that we see in Ephesians 6.16 is one of the weapons of the spirit that's able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. And so in a sense we can see that faith has more than one aspect. And the greatest exposition of faith is to be found in Hebrews chapter 11, where in verse 1 it's defined as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You see, if we have the substance, if we have something physical in front of our eyes, something we can actually see, what need is there for faith? But faith is needed in order to believe in something we cannot see. Take gravity, for instance. We know beyond any shadow of a doubt, don't we, that we're anchored to the surface of a globe that's spinning at a thousand miles an hour at the equator. But if you try putting an object on a ball and spinning it, what happens? It flies off, doesn't it? It's forced off. So how is it that we don't all fly off into space? Well, it was a falling apple, if you remember, that made Isaac Newton realise that there's an unseen force. He named it gravity. And that unseen force causes us to be glued, as it were, to the surface of our planet. We can't see gravity, but we can observe the effect and therefore we can have faith in it. And we need faith for the things that we can't see or touch. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which, were, which are seen were not made of things which do appear. The writer here is saying that whilst it doesn't contradict reason, faith is something that goes beyond reason. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith is believing in who God is, what he's done, and indeed what he will do. In Romans 10 verse 17, we're told that faith comes by hearing the word of God. In Genesis 15 verse 6 and Romans 4 verse 9, it was by faith that Abraham believed God, and it was attributed to him as righteousness. In Habakkuk 2 verse 4, Romans 1 verse 17, Galatians 3 verse 11, and Hebrews 10 verse 38, Scripture records that the just shall live by faith. And Timothy's mother and grandmother passed their faith on to Timothy and taught him to share it with others. And Paul refers to Timothy's faith here as unfeigned. Timothy had genuine or sincere faith. His faith was Heartfelt. It was honest faith. Now those of you who are mothers and, and grandmothers, 
you know, please take note of this, those who had the greatest influence throughout Timothy's life, uh, childhood and early life were his mother and his grandmother. Their godliness was an example to Timothy. And the lessons he learned from them had lifelong consequences, not just for him, but for the many under his pastoral care. And so we must never underestimate the importance of the role that God has given mothers and grandmothers to teach your children about the Lord, about Jesus, about sin, and about salvation. And we praise the Lord for godly mothers and grandmothers. Paul was confident that because of Timothy's godly upbringing, the enduring faith of his mother and grandmother had been instilled in him. And so our first resource is faith. But in order for faith to be any benefit, we need to exercise it. It must be an active faith. How often do we hear people quote the phrase, O ye of little faith? What will be the consequences of not exercising faith or of having anything less than full faith in the Lord? I mean, for instance, we wouldn't trust God for his provision of our daily needs. Or we would be fearful, as were the disciples in the storm on Galilee. Brothers and sisters, we live in perilous times, don't we? And so we need to constantly exercise our faith. How would you or how would I rate the level of faith that we have in God today? How would we respond if the Lord said to us, as he did to Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 1, leave your country, your relatives and your family and your father's house and go to a land that I will show you? Would we have that same level of faith as Abraham when he obeyed God and left his home in the Ur of the Chaldees to walk those hundreds of miles to somewhere that only the Lord knew, somewhere that would only be revealed to him as he travelled? But what about Isaiah? He didn't hesitate, did he, when the Lord asked him in Isaiah 6 verse 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? You remember Isaiah's response? He said, Hineni, literally behold me or look no further. Here I am, send me. Maybe that's what God's wanting you to do. Maybe he's calling you to exercise your faith by stepping out of your comfort zone to serve him. But let me ask you a question. If the Lord should call you, are you ready? Have you enough faith, enough trust in God to say, Hineni, behold me, here I am, send me. We come to our second resource, which is the Spirit in 2 Timothy 1 verses 6 and 7. Paul says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. First of all, Paul encourages Timothy to remember the gift that God has given him for service and to stir it up. That Greek word here has a sense of meaning of to fan into flame or rekindle. And you know, God has given each one of us one or more gifts of service. But if those gifts are not used... We'll either forget how to use them or not have the ability to use them to their full extent. 
Here's an example. Many years ago, Maggie and I learned German in evening classes. We used to go to parts of Germany and northern Italy where English wasn't really spoken very much, so we were forced to learn to speak rather in German. And we, we became relatively proficient at holding conversations in German. We could understand how to find our bed and our breakfast and our evening meal and places to visit and talk to people that we met. But then over time, our holiday habits changed and we no longer went to those areas. We no longer spoke German. And if we meet German people now, it's a struggle. How many of you learned French at school and they never spoke it since? And then you meet a French person. <laughs> Not only is our accent terrible, but we can't remember the words, can we? And that's the same with our faith. If we don't practice it, it will, it will fall into disuse if we're not careful. It's, it's something we need to work at. If we cease practicing a skill, it's possible we could lose it altogether. And in, in, in verse 6 here, there, Paul urges Timothy to stir up that gift of leadership that's been confirmed by his ordination, by the laying on of hands. And then in verse 7, Paul refers to a spirit. And the question here is, is this the Holy Spirit or another form of spirit? I mean, everyone that's born again, all of us receive the indwelling Holy Spirit at the instance we profess faith in Christ, don't we, as Lord and Saviour? And whilst it's certainly correct to say that the Holy Spirit is a resource provided to us by God, the context here is referring to different types of spirit. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. He says, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So here, Paul first addresses Timothy's timidity and wanted him to know that his fear wasn't from the God he served. We also need to know that God has not given us a spirit of fear. I mean, there's times when all of us fear, feel timid or fearful, isn't there? And the first step in dealing with such fears is to understand that they are not from God. Fear and timidity will prevent us from serving God effectively. And so Paul reminds us that God did not give us a spirit of fear. And understanding what God has not given us is that first step to overcoming fear. And the second step is to understand what God has given us. God has given us a spirit of power. When we do his work and proclaim his word, when we represent his kingdom, we will have all his power supporting us. We need to know and recognise that we're in safe hands. We're safe in his hands. He's also given us a spirit of love. We've been given the power to love. We've been given the power to serve others. And the Lord commands us, does he not, to love our neighbours as ourselves. But what if I don't like my neighbour? Or my neighbour is a sort of person that's hard to love? Sure, we've all met people like that, haven't we? It's only by the power of God within us that we can learn to love unconditionally. That chesed, loving kindness. And then thirdly, God has given us a sound mind. The Greek word used here has the idea of a calm, self-controlled mind, in contrast to the panic and confusion that comes in a fearful situation. And power is necessary for us to exercise a sound mind, meaning self-control or discipline. So God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he has given us the spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind, or self-control in other words. 
And then the third resource we have is the Word of God. The Word of God. Paul tells Timothy in verse 13, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. The psalmist tells us in this well-known verse, Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God is likened to a lamp which illuminates our every step in life. Spurgeon says this, he says, Each man should use the word of God personally, practically and habitually, that he may see his way and see what lies in it. Unlike a torch whose battery will fail or a street lamp where the bulb might go out because of a power cut or failure, God's word will never fail. God's word endures forever. It's a light to our path. But brothers and sisters, that path is narrow. And we need the light of God's word to keep us firmly on that narrow way. Jesus tells us that we should enter by the narrow gate because it's the only way to salvation. That broad gate, that worldly gate, only leads to destruction. Everything we need to know is contained within God's word. To Timothy in the third chapter and the 16th verse, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. He doesn't say some scripture or just this bit here or that bit there or just a few verses that you happen to like reading or as some churches would only preach from certain books of the Bible. He says all scripture, and all means all. (laughs) But what does all scripture mean? Well, when Paul wrote this letter, it didn't mean the scripture we've got today, did it? It meant the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and those portions of the New Testament that had already been written. And that was at the time of Paul's writing here, the four Gospels and all of Paul's epistles and James. But today we can legitimately apply this to the whole Bible. All scripture, every single word that we have contained in our Bibles. And the Bible not only tells us what we should do and how we should behave, it also tells us what we're not to do and how not to behave. And we see that all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is God-breathed. The writers of the Bible didn't record any private interpretation. They wrote the message exactly as God gave it them. We see this in 2 Peter chapter 1, in verses 20 and 21. We read here, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the scripture came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In Timothy's day, and throughout the church age, false teachers have put their own interpretation, their own spin, if you like, on God's word. Sound hermeneutics, sound interpretation of scripture, has given way to the errors of allegory and higher criticism. Some teachers believe they know better than God himself by the way that they try to tell us that God is saying this through his word. That's what it really means when God's word isn't saying that. And that's why Paul warned Timothy, and warned us indeed, that as we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, 
The time will come when they, that's the people, and indeed now the church, the time will come when they will not ensure and endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to or accumulate for themselves teachers having itching ears, in other words, having an insatiable curiosity. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And that's why we're commanded in verse 15 of chapter 2 to study To show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In order to avoid being deceived and misled, it's vital that we rightly divide God's word of truth. We must read it and understand it as God intended us to do so. In other words, unless there's an obvious indication that the passage is an allegory or a parable or a metaphor or an illustration, We need to read God's word literally. I'm sure you're all aware of this. It's what you're taught here. We have to read it in context. We have to take note of when it was written, who it was written to, why it was written, what was the situation or condition it was addressing, and how does it fit with all other scripture. But there's something that a lot of people don't say here with interpretation. We need to interpret the word consistently remembering always that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And we also need to be aware of the culture that existed at the time of writing and not try to understand it through 21st century lenses. Very often we try to impose our 21st century ideas and understandings into Scripture, and that can sometimes lead us into a misinterpretation. I mean, if we were to pick up an Agatha Christie novel, you start at the beginning, you'd finish at the end. And you'd read it literally, exactly as the author intended. Unless you're one of those that went to the end to find out who'd done it first. And the challenge always to people, and not to yourselves, I'm sure, is that they should read the Bible exactly the same way. You know, there's a golden rule written by a gentleman called Cooper who says, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic or self-evident and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. In other words, context, context, context. There's another small observation I'll make here is so often people come up to us and ask us questions about what we think is being said. What's our opinion? They ask us to speculate on what Scripture says. And I rather like the way that Arnold Fruchtenbaum would answer it. He says, the Bible doesn't go there, neither will I. That's my authority. Speculation is not interpretation. I would suggest it's guesstimation. Not interpretation, but guesstimation. And so let's determine, as we read in Ephesians 4.14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slate of man... Cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Or if we put it perhaps another way, that we are no longer children tossed back and forth by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by trickery and underhanded schemes of deceitful people. Because there are many people out there today who would try and deceive us. False teachers, false prophets, etc. Moving on to our fourth resource, we have the grace of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved mercy or favour on our behalf. We can't earn grace. Grace is a gift given freely to us, and the source of that grace is Jesus. John 1 verse 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 17 of John chapter 1, for the law was given by Mo- not, not for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And the most important result of God's grace is our salvation. We are saved, are we not? Through grace. We see that in 2 Timothy, again going back to chapter 1, following from verse 8 and through 10. Be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When speaking of the, on the subject of grace, D.L. Moody records a friend telling him, By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And Moody goes on to say, This is the believer's eternal confession. Grace found him a rebel. It leaves him a son. Grace found him wandering at the gates of hell. It leads him through the gates of heaven. Grace devised the scheme of redemption. Justice never would. Reason never could. And it is grace which carries out that scheme. No sinner would ever have sought his God but by grace. The thickets of Eden would have proved Abraham, Ab- sorry, Adam's grave had not grace called him out. Saul would have lived and died the haughty, self-righteous persecutor had not grace laid him low. The thief would have continued breathing out his blasphemies had not grace arrested his tongue and turned it for glory. The words of D.L. Moody. Salvation is the greatest gift that we can receive and the only way that we can be saved is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is a free gift to us, but it was blood-bought by Jesus, as we shall remember later at the table. When we're saved, we are immediately justified before a holy God through grace. Romans 3 verse 24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And furthermore, as a child of God and We read in Titus 2, 3, verse 7, being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I always ask the question when we read scriptures like this, have you experienced the grace of God for salvation? Do you share that same hope of eternal life? And if there's any that are unsure, I'm sure that talking with Pastor Peter or the the elders would be perhaps a good thing to do. What else can we learn about grace? We find that we're strengthened by God's grace. 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul sought the Lord three times to remove 
the thorn of flesh. But he didn't. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, And he, that's Jesus, said unto me, that's Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul took comfort in the fact that he could remain strong because of God's grace. We can approach God's throne of grace through Jesus. Hebrews 4 verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And in verse 16 of the fourth chapter of Hebrews, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come boldly into the presence of God and get the help we need. No trials too great, no temptation too strong, but that Jesus Christ can give us the mercy and grace that we need when we need it. Hallelujah. Our fifth resource is the Lord's faithfulness and power. In the second chapter of 2 Timothy and verse 13, if we believe not, in other words, if we're faithless or unfaithful, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Let me ask you a question. How often do you feel that you're lacking in faith or even perhaps that you have no faith? When we get to the point of lacking or even perhaps losing faith or being unfaithful to God, and it does happen if we're honest with ourselves, God does not lose his faith in us. Jesus will stay by our side even when it seems that we have no faith left. We may be faithless at times, but Jesus is faithful to his promise to be with us to the end of the age. There are those perhaps that might refuse Christ's help and that breaks communication with God. But he will never turn his back on us, even if we turn our back on him. And we come to verse 19 of chapter 2, we read, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Verse 19 is one of a guarantee. God's foundation is sure. What is the foundation of God? Well, it's everything God has created. That's his sure foundation. But there is one foundation of God upon which we must all stand, and that's his word, his truth. The solid foundation of God's truth never changes, is never shaken, and will never fade. The foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. His foundation has a seal, upon which are two inscriptions. The first inscription is that the Lord knoweth them that are his. Now a seal is a guarantee. The Lord knoweth them that are his. He knows who are his, but he also knows who are not. Nothing's hidden from him. And if you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're his for eternity. That's sealed, that's guaranteed. No man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, says Jesus. And verse 19 follows Paul's mention here of two false teachers. He mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus in verse 17 and warns Timothy to shun their teaching. And that leads to the second inscription on that seal. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. We see again here a reference to false teachers, false prophets, false apostles, and even false Christs. 
that even today abound in the world. And Paul urges us to stay well away from them. False teaching has a a devastating effect. We see this in Timothy 2, verse 14. 2 Timothy 2, 14. False teaching subverts, it ruins the hearers. False teaching, that's in verse 14. False teaching shames the teachers, that's verse 15. False teaching leads to ungodliness, that's verse 16. False teaching spreads like gangrene or cancer, verse 17. And false teaching undermines or overthrows the faith of some, that's verse 18. And so we learn that we must have no dealings with unrighteousness. And that leads us into the sixth resource, separation from vessels unto dishonour. To Timothy 2 verse 4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. In order to be an effective soldier for Christ, we must give up worldly security and pleasures. We can't allow ourselves to be distracted from our goal of serving the Lord. A soldier is one who is disciplined, one who obeys orders. So we must give up or separate ourselves from everything that gets in the way of serving Christ. Chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, we read that in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honour and some to dishonour. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honour, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. This great or wealthy house here is a reference to the professing church. And there are two types of vessel or people in it. Some are like gold and silver, they're people of honour. Some are like wood and earth, people of dishonour. Warren Wiersbe says that Paul is not distinguishing between kinds of Christians, but rather is making a distinction between true teachers of the word and the false teachers that he describes. That's Hymenaeus and Philetus. False teachers are the dishonourable vessels, And Paul urges us, and Timothy, to be separate from them. God will not honour those who follow after false teachers. He will only honour those who separate themselves from them. Only those who do so can be prepared to be true servants, to be equipped to serve Christ. And then finally we come to the seventh essential. That's the Lord's sure reward. The Lord's sure reward. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. As Paul nears the end of his life, he tells Timothy in verse 7 that he's fought a good fight, that he's finished the course or the race, and that he's kept the faith. This isn't a statement of boasting on behalf of Paul, but rather one of encouraging Timothy to follow his example. Paul's fight was not one of conflict, it was one of keeping on, keeping on preaching the gospel, overcoming everything that was put in his way to obstruct him. You know, running a race requires effort and determination. It requires us to put aside all thoughts of failure 
and to aim to win. Do you remember those obstacle races on school sports days? You know, they were great fun, but if we look back, they were great lessons on life also, because it taught us that we can achieve nothing if we can't overcome the obstacles along life's path. You couldn't win an obstacle race unless you could overcome the obstacles. And with the Lord's help, Paul overcame. And so, with the Lord's help, must we. We all have obstacles in our lives, don't we? Things that get in the way, things that trouble us, things that weigh us down. But we're told to keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ and the prize, to win that race. We also read that Paul kept the faith. Note it was not his faith. That was never in doubt. Paul kept the faith. William MacDonald puts it this way. He says, this means not only that Paul himself had continued to believe in and obey the great doctrines of the Christian faith, but also that, as a steward, he had guarded the doctrine which had been committed to him and had passed it on to others in its original purity. And so now, having completed the race, Paul sees the prize that awaits him in heaven, a crown of righteousness. And that crown, Paul says in verse 8, is to be given not only to him, but to everyone who love his appearing. Are you ready for the appearing of Christ? And again, the challenge, have you experienced the grace of God for salvation? Are you indeed, as we read in Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ? Paul faced death calmly knowing that he would be rewarded by Christ. Is your life, is my life, preparing us for death? Do we share Paul's confident expectation of meeting Christ? The good news is that the heavenly reward is not just for giants of the faith like Paul, but for all who are eagerly looking forward to Christ's second coming. Paul gave these words to encourage Timothy and us so that No matter how difficult the fight seems, we can keep fighting. When we're with Jesus Christ, we'll discover that it was all worth it. I'm looking forward to that day, are you? If you've been saved, you have a guarantee of assurance of eternal life. There's that guarantee of a crown of righteousness awaiting you in heaven. And so in closing, let's remind ourselves of these seven essential resources. Firstly, we had faith. Secondly, we have the Spirit. Thirdly, we have the Word of God, followed by the grace of Christ, and then the Lord's faithfulness and power, and then our separation from vessels unto dishonour, and finally, the Lord's sure reward. If we take ownership of these seven essentials and apply them in our daily lives, They will help us grow in trust, grow in maturity, grow in service, and what's more, draw nearer to the Lord. And then finally, if we take those and apply them in our lives, we will be better equipped to serve the Lord in whichever way he chooses to call us. May these seven essentials encourage us this morning. May we take them to heart. May we recall them in our daily lives as we draw nearer to God. And may we be ready always if he should call us to say, Hineni, here.
Here I am. Behold me. Send me. Be like Abraham. Go in faith. And may we go in faith to love and serve the Lord and may his word be enshrined in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.